Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We are making our way, depending on who you're comparing to, at a very fast clip through the book of Matthew, or the slowest you've ever gone. So I know that there are both sides in the room, and uh, we're enjoying our time in the gospel account of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, and we come now to the close of this introductory section. And Matthew is wrapping up his introduction of Jesus as the Messiah King. And I thought for sake of context and uh, getting our bearings this morning, we'll begin reading in verse 12 and read all the way through the conclusion of the chapter. So join me in reading Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From this time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his name spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And this concludes chapter 4 of Matthew. Now this morning we are going to study the conclusion to the introduction, but it is also the introduction to the ministry life of Jesus. So we have an introduction within a conclusion to an introduction. And I hope that you'll follow along and see the bridge that this section is to the remainder of the Gospel account of Matthew. I have always been a fan of certain types of introductions, and there are good introductions and there are bad introductions. Some of you have been a part, either on one end or the other, of good and bad introductions. I remember as... A high schooler and junior higher, I lived for starting lineup introductions. Uh, there was nothing better to me than hearing my name and my number and what position I would be starting at in the starting lineups. In fact, I would, at every opportunity, get into the gym, turn on the sound system because I lived there on the property of the school that I went to, and I had a key, so I would get in there, I'd turn on the sound system, and I would do starting lineups, and all five players would be me, and my number, and my position. 
You say, that's proud. Absolutely, that's proud. That's sinful. I acknowledge that readily. And the Lord has saved me from that very expression of sin. But I love starting lineups. I guess the flip side would be hearing your name introduced as you step in line to deal with your ticket in front of the judge. Would Adam Bailey please step up next case? I don't like to hear myself introduced in that setting. Nor does it happen often, so don't worry about that. There are long introductions where someone gets up and basically gives the life history of another individual, and by the time it's over, you're thinking, well, I'm glad I know all about the guy, but he's only got five minutes left to say anything. There are sterile introductions that are basically website bios that somebody got and read, and you realize about a sentence into it that they don't know the person they're talking about at all. There are silly introductions with facts and jokes made about the person so that they have to defend themselves when they begin speaking. There are emotional introductions where someone blubbers and cries the entire time they're trying to tell who is about to come and communicate. There are awkward introductions, which I have been a part of, where the names are forgotten of those being introduced or some other awkward setting. And there are introductions both in speaking and in writing that capture your attention and they rivet you on what is to come. And you're excited and you anticipate what is to follow that introduction. It piques your interest and you're prepared for the communication, whether it be interest in the communicator or whether it be interest in the message that is to follow. And such is the case when we conclude the introduction of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know about you, but I am now riveted, and the readers are to be riveted on the person of Jesus. Chapters 1 to 4 were to focus you. They were to excite you. You were to be anticipating now the ministry of Jesus because he is who he said he was. He is fulfillment of promises from the Old Testament. He is all that he claims to be. And because of that, the remainder of the book, the entire account given of his life and the ministry that he had, feeds off of this introduction. It fuels out of this information that we've studied. We've had basically one message for the last several weeks as we've come back again and again and again. Matthew is introducing Jesus as the Messiah, nothing less and nothing more. And he concludes that today. Jesus has been held up as the Messiah King, the promised King of Israel, Herod was proper in his fear of a king over the Jews. That was who Jesus was. And as the Messiah King, he has been proven to be legitimate, to be valid as king, to have the right to command your allegiance to him and my allegiance to him. It has been appropriate because of his human lineage and his right to the throne of David. You remember in chapter 1. It's been appropriate because he is divine. He is the Son of God, virgin born of Mary. It's appropriate because he fulfilled Old Testament foreshadowing in chapter 2. It's appropriate that he demands our all. He calls us to follow him because of his New Testament forerunner, John the Baptist, and his ministry. It's appropriate It's right for the Messiah King to demand your all because of his baptism 
and his coronation as king, the declaration from heaven as the Spirit descended and the Trinity was present, the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. It's appropriate for Him to demand everything of you and to be your perfect sacrifice, your substitute at the cross, your forgiveness, which we've sung about, because of His temptation and His purity. He was validated. He is the Messiah King. He is God of very gods. Even His movement in chapter 4 throughout the region, His decision to go into Galilee, was fulfillment of prophecy. It's appropriate for Him to demand all of us as His disciples, as those who follow His name as Messiah King. And we come now at the conclusion of chapter 23, and last week we saw Him gathering four individuals to be particular disciples of His kingdom purposes. And His message was clear. Follow Me, And the result will be you fish for men, not for fish. So there was a cause and there was an effect. You follow me and you fish. Not as a a vocation, but as your ministry life. Now we conclude with a look, just a glimpse, just an introduction at the conclusion of this introduction to the ministry life of Jesus of Nazareth, of the Messiah King. What was the Messiah King to be all about here on earth. What was his mission? What was his day-to-day life? If you've ever wondered, what did Jesus, what did he live like? What was his day-to-day? What were his activities? This summary, this section, outlines for you what the life of the Messiah King was to be. And it finishes up this section of Matthew, drawing our attention to Jesus focusing our minds with the anticipation on His ministry so that when we get to chapter 5 in a couple of weeks, when we come to the teaching on the mountain, we will know who it is that's talking. We will understand His purposes and we'll be captured by His message and the principles that He lays out for His kingdom. Make no mistake... Chapters 1 to chapter 4 are for you to gain this singular piece of information. Jesus, historical, real Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the Messiah King. He is the promised one. And because of that, he is to be worshipped, he is to be feared, and he is to be followed exclusively. Now, more immediately on Matthew's gospel purpose, and in his eyes, he is looking forward to giving us several instances that are specific to the ministry of Christ. And so verse 23 to 25 not only conclude this bigger introductory section, but they set up for us and they encapsulate. They're the parentheses around which the Sermon on the Mount and the other discourses of Christ will fit. So understand that verse 23 to 25 cover a large span of time and a lot of ground. And what we will read and study in chapters 5 all the way through chapter 16 happened within the context of verse 23 to 25. Okay? So it is concluding introduction, but it is also 
introducing a whole other section at the same time. This is a pivot point in the Gospel account of Matthew. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the ministry of the Messiah King. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus, and here's how we're going to break it down. We're going to look at his ministry priorities. Verse 23, we're going to look at his ministry pressures, what resulted from his priorities. And then finally, we're going to look at his ministry progression. What did it develop into? How did it grow? What did it look like in its maturity, the ministry of the Messiah King? So let's start, and we won't spend long because of the brevity of the passage, but let's begin examining in verse 23 the ministry priorities of the Messiah King. Jesus had priorities in life. He was disciplined He was submitted to the will of the Father, and he had priorities. There were things that he was about. Verse 23 says, And Jesus went through all of Galilee. Galilee is something of 60 by 30 miles, approximately. There were over 100 towns and villages represented, and Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were no less than 15,000 people in each community. So we're somewhere in the 3 million range of people in this overall region in a very general and approximate sense. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of villages. This is a large uh, populated area that we call Galilee, and we've looked at it in our Bible maps north of Judea. Jesus is going throughout this entire region. He's going to focus his attention on these villages and on the masses of people that are congregated in Galilee. Now, the focus of his ministry is threefold. It's not difficult. This is not some mysterious key that unlocks your Bible. This is right in front of you. Verse 23 gives you a threefold priority for the ministry of Jesus. He was teaching, right? Verse 1, he was teaching. Secondly, he was preaching. He was proclaiming. And thirdly, he was healing. This was and will be, as we study his life and his ministry in the remainder of this gospel account, the totality of his focus. He was either teaching, he was preaching, or he was healing, or he was doing all of the above at the same time. Instructing people about what God had said, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing people from illnesses of every type. So, that is the ministry priority of Jesus, teaching, preaching, and healing. And Matthew gives us little statements that come after each of those designations to help us understand a little more about what it was that he was doing when he was teaching. So, there are clarifications given in your scriptures in verse 23 that further explain the ministry priorities of Jesus. First of all, he was teaching, and then you'll find this little prepositional phrase, in their synagogues, in their synagogues. Now Matthew is, of course, writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Matthew, whose former name was good. Someone else? Levi, good. Matthew, whose former name was Levi, was of what ethnic background? Levi should give a clue. He was a Jewish man. He was of the nation of Israel. So the designation their synagogues is curious to us. Why is Matthew calling it their synagogues? He was a Jew as well. 
He went to the synagogue faithfully, as all faithful Jews would have. Why was it that he had designated Galilean synagogues as their synagogues? It's not because some later man came in and edited his work. It's not because this is not a cohesive whole in a gospel account, but rather because Matthew simply is writing from a different location. And he's looking into Galilee, as it were, and he's looking at the ministry of Jesus and saying, up there in their synagogues, no different than we would designate a location's grocery stores or any other part of our culture or life. So Jesus, in his location, is in the Galilean synagogues. That is where the Jews would gather in Galilee. And he is teaching. And you need to understand a little bit, I need to understand a little bit culturally about what that was. We don't have synagogues. They weren't local churches. They were assemblies that gathered every day of the week. And they studied the scriptures and they read the scrolls. And the priests and the rabbis would teach from the Word of God. Now, this is how it would work. There would be a reading of God's Word. Not unlike what we do, only a lot longer. So be grateful that we're here and that we only did chapter 14 and 15 or 15 and 16 and not the entire section of Moses. And so they would read God's Word and the people would listen to the scrolls and they would pray and offer up meditations before the Lord and offer sacrifices and they would conclude with an instruction time from a section of the reading and many times a guest rabbi who is traveling through would be invited to come and to instruct that particular synagogue and so early in Jesus ministry his popularity is growing as we're going to see whenever he was in town the local synagogue authorities would invite him to come and teach to expound upon the scriptures. I was asked by someone not too long ago if expository preaching was a new fad. Is this something new that you're trying as a church growth method? To which I tried not to laugh, but no, it's not new. This goes back centuries. This goes back thousands of years. And even Jesus, our Lord, was an expositor of the Bible. That means he explained the text. That's what he was doing when he taught. We have illustrations of him doing that in Luke's Gospel account. Jesus read from the scrolls, and his explanation was the shortest sermon ever. His explanation was, this has been fulfilled today. And he closed the books. And he fled because they tried to kill him for the understanding of what he was saying. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He is going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, and he is explaining the Old Testament scriptures. And I don't know about you, but this would be the guest teacher of all guest teachers. When I was in undergraduate studies, I went to a Christian university, and we had guest preachers come in and teach our chapel sessions. And we did the same thing in seminary, down south, and we had an unwritten scale of what we thought about the particular guest teacher that was coming in. And if they had a reputation, if they'd been there before, you would hear a buzz about certain teachers who were coming. This certainly had to be the greatest uh, opportunity for a guest teacher in the history of the synagogues and of Bible teaching. Jesus is teaching people. The one who at 12 was communicating with the priests and the leaders. 
expounding the word of God. Not only is he teaching, but he is proclaiming, he is heralding, he is preaching to the masses. Now understand, there's a little delineation and there's a little distinction given here to the message of Jesus. The preaching ministry of Jesus was centered on the gospel of the kingdom. John preached the kingdom. Jesus has already been referenced as preaching the kingdom is here. It's at hand. John was saying, prepare yourself. Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And you know that the gospel is the good news. That's what that word means. The good news of the kingdom. What was the good news of the kingdom of heaven? The gospel of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was preaching was that he was here. That it was present. That it had come. That preparation had been made and it was now in, it was in its infancy. The kingdom had arrived. In the death of Christ, the kingdom's fulfillment, its culmination, its perfection would be held off until the second coming and the mysterious age of the church was entered in, which is not foretold in the Old Testament. The good news of the kingdom was the sermon and the preaching of Jesus. And then finally, he was healing, and there's a little phrase after healing that further explains the extent that Jesus was healing so different than today's healing ministries, quote-unquote. Here's the extent of Jesus' healing. Every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew is intentional here at the conclusion of stacking the deck in, in favor of Jesus being the Messiah King, Jesus healed every disease and he healed every affliction. None were turned away. None were too big for him to handle. None were too small. Now Jesus was active in healing ministry because he was the Messiah. This was a part of the messianic expectation of the Jews. In other words, the Jews expected for the one who would come as the Messiah to be about healing. And I'll tell you why. If we go back to the book of Isaiah, in chapter 29, we find clear statements about the one who would come and the time that would come when the kingdom would be present. Promises made to the nation that they would not always be in judgment, that in fact God would eventually bless them, And in his time of blessing, that is the kingdom coming, we find this in Isaiah chapter 29 in verse 17. Is it not yet very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, notice verse 18, in that day when blessing returns to the nation, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That is Jesus. Chapter 35 in Isaiah further explains this or sets this expectation in front of us. Beginning in chapter 34, the promise is made of a Messiah coming in chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. This promise is given of this time period. 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They'll be opened up. Then shall the lame, the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Then the eyes of the blind, verse 5 says, shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The messianic expectation of the Jewish nation and those who would encounter Christ in Galilee was that he would be about healing. And in fact, he is. And he's not just healing some. He's healing every disease. And we'll see that he is healing all who come. Not just every disease, but every individual who encountered him. So, these are the priorities of Jesus. This is going to be what we study in his life, beginning in chapter 5. He will be teaching us. He'll be preaching to us the good news of the kingdom. And we will see him repeatedly heal in miraculous form the ailments of people from every stripe and various diseases and afflictions. And all this was done, the concluding statement of verse 23 among the people, the general people of the communities were being benefited by the messianic ministry and priorities of the Messiah. All right, that takes us then to verse 24, and we move from the ministry priorities to the results, which we entitle the ministry pressures of the Messiah King. So he has priorities, and the result is found in verse 24, and the result is immense pressure. There are the ministry pressures of the Messiah King. And this is where we marvel at the strength physically of our Lord. So his fame, verse 24 says, his fame spread. His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Here's the explanation of the pressure of the resulting ministry of Jesus. Great crowds are gathering now because his fame is spreading through all Syria. Now, if you were to go back to your map section, and you don't need to this morning, as much as I know you want to, you don't have to. If we understand from a Roman perspective, all of the land from Judea to Perea to Decapolis to Galilee, on the map of Jesus' ministry, the whole of that map would be considered Syria. It's the region of Syria. So I don't know how to say it other than Jesus' fame touched all of the known area in which he was ministering. Every home was talking about this one Jesus who was teaching, preaching, and healing. All the synagogues were buzzing with the messages coming back of what he was accomplishing and the authority with which he was teaching. And the result was immense pressure because as his fame spread, no different today, as his fame spread, they brought him. They come and find Jesus. So in verse 23, his priority is to be teaching, to be preaching, and to be healing. And he is going himself. He is ministering throughout Galilee. The result is that the entire region of Syria starts finding him. Now we have a bunch of people who are on a mission to find Jesus and they're not just wanting to find him to hear him teach. They're bringing everyone they know who is sick or who is suffering. 
The pressure must have been unbelievable as Jesus continually, almost without rest, ministered to these people. Notice the end of verse 24, this small understated phrase, and he healed them. Every disease and all people from all over Syria, all over the known region, and Jesus is faithful to heal them. Now we have some descriptions given to us, and I think we ought to at least make mention of those in verse 24. Various diseases and pains is the general term or general description of the people being brought to him. So they were both diseased, as in ill, and they were in pain of some other form or some other source. And here are the descriptions given. Those oppressed by demons, demon possession and demon oppression was at its highest level in the ministry of the Messiah as he was on earth. We see more demon activity while Jesus was walking through Galilee and these regions than we we do in anywhere else in our scriptures. Many were afflicted, and scripture is clear that there are those who are directly afflicted by demons. It's not a myth. It's not something that makes good television or bad television. It's reality that there are those who are afflicted by demons. And Jesus, because he is the Messiah King, has all authority even over the servants of hell. And he is casting out demons and he is healing these people who are afflicted by demons. So they are oppressed by demons. Secondly, we have a term epileptics. And maybe that's translated differently in your translation, your English translation. But epileptics is the best option the ESV could come up with for a very difficult word. Really, literally, the word means moonstruck. And this word deals with all mental handicaps. Epilepsy was an expression of this, but this deals with the mind and illnesses that are associated with the mind. Jesus was healing mental illnesses. And that term has gotten very much overused today, but in the true sense of the term, those who were battling with mental sickness were being healed by Jesus. And then finally, paralytics is really a broad term that deals with all crippling diseases. So we're going to see paralytics, and we think of those who are quadriplegic, paralyzed, uh, whether it be from the neck down or the waist down or whatever the case, Paralytics here is a much broader term, and it means crippling of the physical body. And Jesus is going to heal withered hands. He's going to heal withered feet and legs. He is going to touch and heal many who were paralytics. They were crippled by diseases in their physical extremities. So we have a big, broad description of what pressure Jesus was dealing with, and that was... Various diseases and pains were being brought to him from all over the known region. And then specifically, we have these categories given to us. Those who were oppressed by demons, those who were struggling mentally and were handicapped and afflicted mentally, and those who were afflicted physically with paralysis or crippling of their physical bodies. And he healed them. And he healed them. Again, the simplicity is amazing. All who came or were brought by others and of any disease were healed by the Messiah King. His ministry life was the lasting testament to his messianic claim. He was the Son of God. 
He was opening the eyes of the blind. He was opening the ears of the deaf. He was causing the lame to walk. Therefore, he has the right to demand everything of you and of me. You'll remember later in Matthew, in chapter 11, verse 1 to 6, John the Baptist from prison sends word. We don't know what the circumstances were, but John was at some level wondering if in fact he had got it right. Was this really the Messiah? Was Jesus the one? So he sent from prison some of his disciples to go to Jesus, and they come and they say, John wants to know, are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Are you the Messiah? Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He says, go and tell John. And what are they to go and tell John? Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 and 6, go tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Go tell him. Because John will know just by that description alone, that the Messiah is here. And Jesus there was claiming, as he does throughout the Word of God, to be that Messiah, the promised one of heaven. So we've seen the priorities and this summary and conclusion to this introduction, the pressure that that met him as a result of those priorities and his ministry to others. And now in verse 25 is really the bridge that will lead us into Chapter 5 and beyond, in the ministry of Christ, we find the ministry progression. What does his ministry develop into? The progression of the Messiah King's ministry. Read with me in verse 25. And great crowds, multitudes, you might say in your translation, hordes of people by the thousands followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan we could have taken that same description and used the word Syria. Okay, His fame spread throughout all Syria, and now people are coming in mass, and they're walking with him. Followed him is not necessarily a salvific following, but many of these people no doubt came to trust Christ and to place their faith in him as the Messiah and were saved from their sin by his sacrifice upcoming on the cross. So great crowds were gathering from Galilee, from the Decapolis, which was east of Galilee, southeast of Galilee, from Jerusalem, which is the center of the nation of Israel, to the west of the Jordan, from Judea, which is the entire region in which Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, those are all included in Judea, and beyond the Jordan, which is Perea, which is east and south of Jerusalem. All the area was progressing. The ministry of Christ was progressing in that crowds from all of these places were walking around with him throughout his ministry life. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? And wouldn't I? If the lame were being made to walk, the deaf were hearing and the blind were seeing, those oppressed by demons were being healed, those who were struggling and afflicted mentally were being given sound minds, And those who were crippled in every form were being made to walk and to live as if they had never suffered the crippling effects of their disease. And this progression is the introduction. This is the introduction to chapter 5. Because the question that's asked by this verse is, well, what's he going to do with all these people? What will the Messiah King do with these hordes of people? And 5, verse 1, tells you what he does. He goes up into a hill where he can get them seated and see them. 
And when he finds a plateau, he sits down and he's going to teach them. He's going to instruct them. He's going to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to these people. It was the crowds that had gathered that made the ministry life of teaching, preaching, and healing an exhausting and consuming mission for the Son of God. I've wondered sometimes, not outside the providence of God, but how long could he have lived with the life that he was living as a human being? Three years of ministry at this level and the intensity with which he was serving and healing and teaching and preaching, the overload of the pressure of ministry on Jesus, and yet this was the priority of the Messiah. This is why he came, this was his mission, and he was carrying out the will of his Father. It was this ministry, it was these priorities, it was these priorities that was tempted by Satan to be done away with. He offered up an out so that this lifestyle could be set aside and he could shortcut the plan of his father and follow after the deceptive plan of Satan, the deceiver. And Jesus stood firm in the temptation and pure without sin to embrace this ministry and this progression through his life. So that's the end of the introduction. And I trust that I haven't gotten in the way of you being excited and anticipating what is to come in the ministry of this one, the Messiah King. We've seen the final elements of this introduction. His priorities, his pressure, his progression, as people gathered. And all of these facts leave us without an argument about who Jesus is and what is rightfully his. That's been our theme. That's been our mantra. That's been our cry as we've gone through this introduction. He is the Messiah, and because of that, it's his privilege to demand our all. And it's his privilege alone. Our worship and our allegiance to Jesus as our master, as our mediator, is without question the point of Matthew's introduction. And that concludes the introduction of our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Now the progression of our Lord would lead us to the discourse on the mountain beginning in chapter 5, but that is not the end of the ministry of Jesus. So it would be shortchanging you to leave you meditating on chapter 5 as the culmination of this ministry life that's been explained in verses 23 to 25. His teaching ministry, his preaching ministry, and his healing ministry were not and are not the culmination of his ministry on earth. The culmination of his ministry on earth comes in Matthew chapter 27. When he's nailed to a cross, and he suffers, and he dies to take the place of sinners before his Father, and he is separated from his Father for you and for me who believe. That's the culmination of verses 23 to 25. And in his grace, he preached and he taught and he called men to repentance and to discipleship and he healed 
to validate over and over and over again his right as Messiah King. And yet his ultimate end is found in Matthew chapter 27 as he suffers and he dies for sinners. That was the mission of the Messiah King. And the good news of his resurrection on the third day is the very reason that we gather together as his church this morning. It's the ultimate ministry of the Messiah King to be the sinless substitute for sinners. And we come each Lord's Day to celebrate the victory we have in Christ. Right? We sing about that victory. We pray about that victory. We rejoice in it. You sit and I stand and we think about it and we talk about it and we meditate upon it. And yet every opportunity that we have to celebrate the Lord's table is a chance for us not just to celebrate in the victory that is ours, but to meditate on the price that was paid to grant that victory. Victory is ours if you're in Christ this morning. But the price that was paid for that victory is immense and immeasurable. 